0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. You have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, and I'll be reading right up to chapter 4, verse 1. So I'll just give around 10 seconds for you to flip open. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Verse 12. with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks to God. Thank you, Jeff, for bringing God's word to us today.
1: Happy New Year for those of you who are. That'll do it. Happy New Year again to those of you who are celebrating and couldn't hear me the first time. Chinese New Year is a day when, uh, if you're a foreigner like me, um, you may feel like I have to wear red. Oh, that's how I felt this morning, um, to, to fit in a little bit better. One of the other things I do, um, which makes me look like a, a real foreigner in Singapore sometimes, is I will run in the middle of the day. Um, so that's, <laughs> those are the two ways I, I, I sometimes uh, stick out, aside aside from others. But when I run... <coughs> I run as if I'm in a race. I don't need time. I don't, sorry, I don't need to time myself to feel like I'm, I'm really racing and that I should be running faster. If I'm on a jog, there's someone ahead of me. If it's a man, a woman, a child, an uncle, I have to get past them, overtake. And I'm determined never to be overtaking myself. I hardly look behind, but I'm just like, just in case someone's there, I've got to keep going. Needless to say, I don't run very far, and um, I'm pretty breathless by the time I get home. But a race is a great metaphor for the Christian life. Uh, it's a race that requires perseverance, focus, and we're called to run to the end. And wherever you are in this race, whether you've just started or you've been running for, for quite a long time, we, are, we, we know that this race is going to get hard at some point. You're going to be exhausted, thirsty, um, Really, really tired and, and worn out at some point in the race. And maybe you're at the point where it's hard for you today. You're, you're tired, you're exhausting. Following Jesus, living a life of, 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 of fighting sin, denying yourself, trusting Him. Maybe that's even become, become hard for you. And there are important questions for those moments. How do I keep going when it's hard? And most importantly, how can I ensure I finish well? So I want to speak to that point of the race in three ways. Three points. Press on because Christ has made you his own. Press on with Christ Himself as your price, and press on because Christ is coming for his own. So firstly, press on because Jesus Christ has made you his own. Paul starts off by saying in verse twelve that I haven't made it to the end yet. I'm not I'm not at the finish line just yet it reads, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's saying, I haven't obtained this, but I'm determined to make it my own. What, what's he talking about? What is the this and the, and the it um, in this sentence? <clears throat> well, he talks about not yet being perfect, but we have to scroll back a little bit um, to the end of last week's passage to kind of catch what he's talking about. Uh, he says there, if I read a few, a few, a few words of, of, of the last few verses, he's, um, he's given up everything. He's Sorry, he's given up self-boasting, um, trusting his accomplishments, that he may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, So he's talking about some, so if if you look at this block of text, there's some things there which he has already and some things that he not yet has. So he has Christ's righteousness by faith, but he isn't yet perfect. His sanctification isn't yet complete. He knows Christ by faith. He has a relationship with him, but he doesn't know him completely. It's a long distance relationship. He doesn't yet have Christ in his arms. And he's presently sharing in Christ's sufferings but he's still waiting for the resurrection. Now, the way you can think of this already not yet thing is imagine someone who's engaged to somebody from a different country and they're living in a different country. Maybe you met at a resound conference or you've been introduced to them through family, friends, and most of your relationship is happening over phone calls. You got messages, maybe the occasional visit if you're lucky. You know this person that you're married. You you do know them, but you don't know them fully at the same time. You haven't taken hold of them just yet. They're still far off. But there is a wedding date. And you're looking forward to that day because that's the day when you're gonna get your long-term visit pass so that you can finally move to their country. And you get that perfect white dress and it's yours to keep. And you have them in your arms. This is what Paul presses on to make his own. He's engaged to Christ. And this is something we have as Christians. We live at a distance. We haven't taken hold of Christ just yet, but we know that we will take hold of him. He has made us his own. So in this, pre- in this, this period of, of, of long distance relationship, Paul presses on to make it to the end. He's pressing on in his sanctification to obtain Christ-likeness, to get to the resurrection. And look at the verbs Paul uses for the Christian life. He says, he presses on He's straining forward he tells them to hold true, to stand, ver- stand firm. All of those verbs are very active. Those are the kind of verbs you might use if you're describing climbing a mountain or running a marathon. There's nothing passive about them. And this means we're called to really fight for Christ in our lives. We're called to fight for, for Christ-likeness, to press on with all our effort, to be competitive in holiness to make it to the end. And that means it's painful sometimes. The pressing on is, is pressing on through pain. When I was in university, I used to run uh, 400 meters for my halt, so not, not a very high level, but um, but I, I ran in some 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 races. Um, and compared to 100 or 200 meters, 400 is a hard race. It's a sprint. But your body can't really sprint that far. By the time you get to the last 150, lactic acid is... It's building up in your legs. You're really fading. It's agonizing. You can't keep up that pace. Everything in your, in your body is telling you to just give up, slow down, but you have to press through the agony. Just push as hard as you can to make it to the end and pass the, the baton to your teammate. That's pressing. It starts to hurt, and you press on through that. Remember, Paul's in prison. He's, he's just written to them, to, that he expects to share in Christ's sufferings, to, to become like him in his death. Now, I know it's Chinese New Year and we're not supposed to talk about suffering, but that's what, that's what this, this means. Why should we press on when faith is hard? Where, where does the push actually come from? I, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. When, it's, when it hurts, he turns his gaze... And he sees what Jesus has first done for him. He presses on because Christ has made him his. Now, if this race, the way we run this race, it's all about our obedience, the amount of exertion we we put in to get to the end and and get the prize, we'll be total failures at that. I fail at this all the time. I sin and, and fall short again and again and again. But Christ has first run the race for us. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He pressed on through suffering, yet without sin. And he died on a cross for sinners. And he, he, he resurrected from the, from the dead. He has really run this entire race and made it to the end. And what he does is he shares his victory with us. This is the, I'm saying that Jesus has done it all for us. And these words... Christ has made us his own. It's super intimate. It's like a wedding. In marriage, two become one. And part of this, one of the ways you might express this, is that we share our bank accounts. They share their assets and and liabilities. You can think of this. This is something that we have with Christ. Christ's assets are shared with us. His righteousness, all of His accomplishments, everything Christ has is shared with us. And everything that I have, all my liabilities, my sin, that's shared with Christ and that's paid for by Christ on the cross. As a husband to His bride, Jesus makes us His own. He makes us one with Himself. And this is something every sinner is invited into. Every, every one of us is invited into this. We fall short, but in love, Christ freely offers himself to us. And you can receive this by by faith. Now, some of you might ask, okay, if Jesus has done everything for me, finished the race, paid for my sins, done all that, why do I have to press on so hard? Why do you talk about the, the Christian life as, as, as a kind of race where you're fighting and, and pressing on through, through difficulty? Aren't we supposed to just rest in Jesus? And you might think that straining, exerting effort to obey Jesus is contradictory to resting in Christ and being justified by faith. And I can see why you might think that. Paul, if you think of last week's sermon, Paul was just warning about uh, warning the Philippians about legalists who put their confidence in their accomplishments who trust in their own obedience for their relationship with God. And Paul's argument was, like, like, I could do this, but look at me. Like, all of my past accomplishments, tribe of Benjamin, zealous for the law, Pharisee of Pharisees, all that stuff, that's all trash. That's all trash compared to knowing Jesus. It's all trash compared to having Christ's righteousness through faith alone. But straining and... Earning are not necessarily the same thing. Paul doesn't say then, because Christ has made me His own, I rest in Him. It's okay. I just I just trust Him. It's going to be fine. He says because Christ has made me His own, I press on through pain. Remember, to make Him my own. For Paul, it's actually straightforward. Resting in Christ's victory is what pushes him to strain and follow after Christ, to pursue Christ all the more. Resting in Christ and fighting sin are not mutually exclusive. We don't strain to earn. We strain because we're first won by Jesus. And when Paul gave up being a Pharisee to follow Jesus, he actually didn't become any less zealous in his obedience to God just because Christ has paid it all for him. He actually became more zealous in following God because now instead of persecuting other people out of his zealousness for God, sending them to prison, stoning them, having them stoned, he's now the one who's suffering himself for following Jesus. This takes a a whole lot more effort and zealousness. He's the one being stoned. He's the one who's in prison right now. If your understanding of the gospel then makes you selective, about God's commands, the problem is that that we haven't tasted deeply enough of the sweetness of who Jesus really is. Now, there's a problem when we think of God uh, as this harsh, demanding manager. Um, For those of you who might have had a harsh, demanding manager before, how do you work unto a harsh manager? Well, when they're watching you strive really hard because you've got to appease them, especially in a performance appraisal time. You have to keep your job. This is the only option. You need to like, try and get a good score on your performance appraisal um, to get some sort of bonus. But then when your manager, who's, who's a harsh manager, when he's not watching, you slack. You, do, you maybe don't try very hard at your work if, if he's not going to notice. You show up to work late when he's on leave. The point is, if you have to earn someone's love, you will hate them. But behind both of those attitudes of striving really hard to earn his favor and, and just slacking because he's not, not watching, you're still viewing God as a harsh manager. Compare that to working to please someone that you, that you really love. When you're won over by a lover or by the love of a friend, Pleasing them is the lightest thing you can do. Serving them is just just a joy. You love to organize their birthday party. You don't mind all the effort that, that, that goes in because you love this person. You love this friend. When we understand how God's love is freely and extravagantly given to us in Jesus, we are won over by his love. We can press on for him, even when it's hard, because he's his, and I want to make him mine, He's given Himself completely to us, and we can trust Him. Now, if you're here and you're struggling with some of God's commands, maybe in a, in a difficult season of your life as a Christian, uh, maybe, you've come with, maybe you've come from a place of always thinking of God as this, this harsh ruler with many demands on your life. My encouragement to you is to run to Jesus. Run to the Savior Himself. He says, come, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, for I am gentle and I'll give you rest for your soul. And then my, my encouragement for you is to press into Jesus the person. Consider what his love shows you about the type of master God really is and how God really wants you, you to live. It's it's a life of not pressing on and, and, and just have, I obey for, for obedience sake, but I press on into Jesus, the person, and out of, out of love for him, then I, then I serve him and I can continue on the race. So press on then, because Christ has made us his own. Press on to what? We press on, second point, because Christ himself is our prize. Verses 13 and 14 say, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize, of the upward call of God, in Christ Jesus. If you're going to press on when it's hard, you need to know where you're going. Like a sprinter, fixing his eyes on the finish line, not looking back. Paul says he forgets what lies behind and he strains forward to what lies ahead to claim the price. If you're Usain Bolt, you can finish a race kind of looking over your shoulder, showboating in the last 20 meters, but we're mere mortals. We have to depend on the grace of, of Jesus to get through. We need to set our eyes on the prize to make it all the way to the end. So what's the prize waiting at the end of the race? Our prize isn't simply heaven. It's not glory, a crown, golden city. It's not even this promise that every tear is going to be wiped away. Those, those are all things or the, or, the, or the absence of things, but they all point to a person. Our prize is this person, Jesus himself. We sometimes... Um, describe the gospel shorthand as God saves us from our sins through Jesus' death and resurrection. But if we only ever think about the gospel this way, it's, it's kind of incomplete because we're only talking about what we're, what we're saved from. We're actually saved for something or someone. And the gospel reveals the one for whom we are saved, the one who's come down to restore us to a relationship with himself. The sin is just the obstacle that gets in the way. It's really about the relationship with God Himself. That's, that's what the gospel is for. God come to save us into this relationship with Himself. If I'm going to run well, I need to know my price. Now, if I don't find Jesus beautiful today, how can I possibly sustain, be sustained um, to live for Him when it's hard? Our prize is someone, because it's a person, it's someone we can know today. The more you taste of Jesus, it's kind of the opposite of chocolate. The more, the more chocolate I eat, the, the I get diminishing returns, right? The less and less I'm satisfied by each additional bit of chocolate. Um, but Jesus is the opposite. The more I taste of Jesus, the more I want of him, the more I enjoy him, the, the more I actually, I, I actually love him, and the more I want to press on for him. That's your relationship with Jesus, one that that, that we're cultivating each day because we're preparing for when the race is hard. We need to put ourselves in places where we're gonna hear his voice. Now, I don't know how you can do this, apart from spiritual disciplines. But at the same time, we don't read the Bible and and pray just for the sake of, of discipline, just for the sake of reading our Bible. Let's draw near to this person because we really expect to hear his voice. We, we expect to have a personal relationship with him. We expect a taste of his sweetness in the specifics of our lives. He she speaks to me as an individual. Now, my wife is going to give birth in a few weeks, um, and every mother knows in a way that the rest of us really have no idea what a painful experience this, this can be, or well, this, <laughs> this will be, um, and of course she's fearful, right? She She's heard stories. But when she fears, the thing that she's told me gives her hope is that she knows Jesus is in the room with her. We don't, we don't have a doula, but but she knows that Jesus is her helper, her encourager, that she can lean into him at her weakest. And she knows that suffering doesn't separate us from our prize, but suffering is actually something that makes us to press into Jesus and rely on him more. And she shared that in suffering, she expects to experience the sweetness of Jesus in a unique way that she won't otherwise know. And some of those moments for those of us who've been Christians for a while, who've maybe gone through, gone through a trial, gone through some some sort of suffering where we had to depend on Jesus. We know this, don't we? We we look back at those moments when Jesus uh, comforted us and helped us in our moment of greatest need. And they become signposts, reminders of who Jesus is, how faithful he is to get us to the end, to, to, to make it um, to our price. They remind us that he's worth f- fighting for. Now, Paul contrasts those who set our eyes on Jesus to setting one's mind on earthly things. I'm going to jump ahead to verses 18 and 19, then I'll come back to to the verses we skip in a moment. So verses 18 and 19, for many of whom I've often told you, and I'll tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The end is destruction. The God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul's describing a lifestyle that's opposed to the cross of Christ. It's opposed to the sufferings of Christ. An alternate lifestyle of instead of setting our minds on God himself, we set our minds on created things. We chase after those. Now, we all press after something. What are some of the things that you long for in this season? Success? Money? Love? Love? Affirmation? Prosperity? For many, learning New Year is about chasing prosperity. But it's not so much that, okay, prosperity itself is something that that is not good, right? It's the way that we seek. These longings are often futile. If you set your mind on good things and make them into ultimate things, you worship them. And it's a vain pursuit. Because when we chase after these things... Even good things, as ends in and of themselves, they never satisfy us. They never really bring us what what we promise. We're always always longing for more. And those longings in life, you can be be in a a rat race forever. And it's like going around and around in in a wheel, and you're never never ultimately fulfilled by those things. You, You make sacrifices, but they don't give you what they promise. And Paul says that way of living... It leads to destruction. We make good gifts, money, health, careers, relationships. When we make those good things ultimate things, and we chase after those, those that path only leads to destruction because you're walking away from the gift, gi- from the gift giver himself. This is um, the reason he talks about destruction. This, this, this is a warning. We reject the creator, the gift giver, and we chase after created things. And what, what, we're, what we're doing is we're walking away from the gift giver because we love the gifts more than the source of life itself. You're seeking what only your creator can give you and things that can't satisfy. Now, C.S. Lewis realized this predicament, and he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And consider, for a moment, waiting for things compared to waiting for a person. A few months ago, I ordered a new iPhone. I waited for it. I finally got it. And when, when like after a few days, I was totally bored of it, right? It's just a faster version of, a, of my own phone. Compare that to waiting for a person. My mom just booked flights to visit, and I'm waiting for her to visit. And she's visited before. I know it's different, right? When I spend time with her, it's, it's not like I'm sick of her in, in, in just a week. Like, I, I, I wait for something that this, that's going to satisfy me. Now, this is pointing to something greater. You wait for a thing, and you're dissatisfied for, uh, within a week. Wait for a person who's really worth it, you're not quickly dissatisfied, but this points to something even greater, because even, even a person can let us down, right? But it tells you, if you're made for a relationship, then more than that, it points to our longing for a relationship with our Creator, who never lets us down, but always, that ultimately satisfies the longings of our hearts. Your longings reveal that you're created for Jesus Himself. God's made himself known, and Jesus invites you into a relationship with himself that will satisfy your deepest longings if you don't know him. He doesn't satisfy your longings in the way you expect, but in the way that gives life, lasting life, and joy and fulfillment. And you're invited to receive Jesus by faith, putting your trust in him, thinking he is the one that's going to satisfy these longings. I'm going to stop chasing after them in the way that I have. But this isn't just a warning to non-Christians, right? Paul's words are a warning to us as well. The question is what pursuit am I on? And the telltale telltale sign in verses 18 and 19 is what am I setting my mind upon? Consider how much this idea of what you set your mind on comes up in our passage. He says he forgets what lies behind um, he tells people who are mature to think like him. Says, so "Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk this way." And he warns against setting your mind on earthly things. So, what you set your mind on determines which direction you go. Each day, we either set our minds on Christ and we press on after Him, or we set our minds on earthly things and we walk away from Christ. The manner of your life tells you what your prize is. Now, there's an alternate lifestyle that's sold to us in Singapore, right? It's the mindset of materialism, meritocracy, success, status. When you go visiting later today, if if you are visiting, and you get your annual checkup of how you're really doing in life, what you're doing with your life, the questions about when are you having children, or... As one lady in our CG shared, when your auntie passes you the ang and says, last one is a single next year, she's suggesting a worldview, that the ultimate prize is a boyfriend and marriage. That's not what we believe as, as Christians. You're being sold a different story about what true gain is. And Paul says, don't buy it. When Paul describes this other pursuit, he doesn't simply call them enemies of Christ. He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. In this opposing worldview, suffering for Jesus, missing out in life, is foolish. But if we're pressing on after Jesus, suffering's expected. Deferred longings are are, are expected because we're waiting for him. And the way you respond to suffering tells you what you really prize. Treasuring Jesus And suffering tells us that we're we're on the right track. If you're suffering with unfulfilled longings, maybe because you're single and you won't compromise to date a non-Christian, because Jesus is a better prize to you than marriage, your deferred longings are a sign that you really are following him, that you are pursuing him, that you're moving towards your prize. You don't need to be ashamed of that. Now, Paul's told them, how he's running after Christ. And then he says, Let those who are those of us who are mature think this way, think like me. And if anything, if in, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. See a bit of patience for them. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained, what we've attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's saying one thing in two ways. He's saying, think like me and imitate me. So think of the same thing as me, and and follow me in pursuing that thing. We need godly examples of Christ-following. This is not look at your pastor or look at your CGL and see see how much they do for Jesus. It's not like that. But follow godly examples in what they set their minds upon. Like Paul, I'm not perfect. Don't look at don't look at my perfection, or like don't don't perceive this as as, as perfection. But follow me in setting your eyes on Jesus and straining after Him because I want Him more than anything else. Now, why can't we? Why do we need uh, examples to follow? None of us think entirely for ourselves, right? None of our deeply held beliefs—I hope we I hope we know—really come from deep inside of us. We all follow someone in what we live for, and if you don't know what you're following, you're probably following just the algorithm or the culture around you. As Christians, thankfully, our faith isn't based on our feelings. Our faith rests on Jesus. And often we know that, that my feelings can be fickle, and I need his people to help me see truth better, to help me to see Jesus better. So Paul's saying, surround yourself with people running the same race as you, who set their gaze on Jesus and run hard after him. And then when you can't see Jesus in your own life, Listen to them. Listen to their faith. Let their faith, let, the thing, let their pursuit of Jesus encourage you to run with them until you see Jesus again, until your own heart is encouraged. We run together. So let's, let's look at our Sunday worship in this way. This is the place we gather to meet with God, but also to, to imitate one another. And, and turning our gaze to Jesus and beholding Jesus as the true prize. That's what we're doing when we're, when we're worshiping together. We're beholding Jesus together and singing, He is worthy, together. And this means that church isn't just the place for you when you're doing really well in your faith, when you, when you can bring a, bring a smile to your face and like, look it, um, church is the place that you need most Actually, when you're discouraged in your faith, faith, when you, when you don't feel like following, when you really don't feel like it, that's when you need the Sunday gathering most. That's when you need the faith of your family to buoy you up. Now, the flip side of this, of course, is that we are we're all influencers, right? Yeah. If I'm if I follow godly examples, I'm called to do that. Then okay, as a Christian, I'm well, as a human being, I'm an influencer, whether you like it or not. Your CG sees and they, they, they know, they perceive something of what your eyes are really on, whether that's your career, your relationship status, the pull of family life, your CG sees what your mind is set on because they see how you walk. They see they, they see your walk. Now, what's the main way, if I'm an influencer if I'm an influencer, what's the main way I'm called to model Christ following? It's not through being a perfect Christian, right? Babylon B has this book that they put out, How to Be the Perfect Christian. It's not about buying that book and then following all the, uh, the satirical examples there. We model pressing after Jesus, that Jesus is better than anything the, whole, the world holds up, by repentance and faith. That, that, that's really it. That's the only way to do this. We model prizing Jesus through our repentance and our faith in Him. That, 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 that's, that's all we're called to do. Now, I've heard one reason to press on, because Christ has made us His own. We belong to Him. Got one reason that we should want to press on, because Christ Himself is our prize. But finally, to run well to the end, we need to press on, because we know that Christ is coming back for us. Verses 20 and 21, because our citizenship, sorry, but, He says, our citizenship Is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Jesus is returning to repatriate his citizens, he's granted us the citizenship. We have the passport that declares that we're his, but right now we live as foreigners in a a strange land, this and in a war torn land in many ways. How does this all end? The king of our new home is sending the military to save us from destruction and bring us home. Now, our hope is specific. We, we, we need to know what we're waiting for, right? We've been given specific um, instructions of what we're waiting for. Um, we know who the destination is. It's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we also know the, the how, When he comes, he will transform our lowly body. Broken, suffering, dying. He's going to transform it to be like his glorious body. Christ returns to make us like himself. Now, how do you experience the lowliness of your body? Illness, aging, body dysphoria, feelings and emotions that are just way out of whack, shame, Maybe you experience real, real pain in your body or, or, or in your life, and you've experienced that for a long time. Now, when Jesus' disciples saw him resurrected, they beheld this figure who was so glorious that they hardly re- some of them hardly recognized him at first until he, until he really revealed it, it was him. But he was still Jesus. He was still like, okay, visibly Jesus. And in his glory... This is, this is like such a mystery, right? What are our resurrected bodies going to be like? But Jesus gives the, Jesus gives the best hint because some people saw him and, and, and recorded that. In his glory, Jesus still had the scars of his, resurre- of his crucifixion. His re- he was uh, resurrected in such a way that his wounds actually made him more glorious because his scars now declared Jesus' power to redeem broken people. Now think of what it means that He will transform the suffering of your broken bodies as you struggle to press on even now, as, as you, as you, as you yeah, really suffer in this, in this life. Think of what it means, that He's going to uh, transform the suffering of your body into a glorious body like His. He takes our specific suffering and He more than wipes the tears away transforms our brokenness into glory, glory that ultimately adores Him. We can entrust our brokenness to Him, and none of it, none of our brokenness in this life is is, is wasted. He transforms that into, into glory, glory for Himself. Now, how does He do this? He does this by the same power that enables him to subject all things to himself. My passport, I choose my passport because I have, I think Singapore passport says something different, but it's, I I wanted to use my one. My, My passport reads, the Governor General of New Zealand requests in the name of Her Majesty the Queen, all whom it may concern to allow the holder to pass without delay or hindrance and in case of any need to give all lawful assistance and protection. Okay, I read that out because it, it says something about how my passport has power to bring me somewhere. The authority by which my passport asks immigration to let me pass is in the name of the queen. Okay, the queen is dead, but this human authority, even though, she's, <laughs> even though she's dead, she's just powerful enough to get me through the, through the human checkpoint at, at ICA. Now, the promise of repatriation for us, depends on the power or the authority behind your passport. If our citizenship is in heaven, this passage is saying the authority by which we will be repatriated is this, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The power by which he will surely bring us home is the same power that uh, enables him to subject all things to himself. Remember Philippians 2. This This is a throwback to that. It said, God has ex- is highly exalted him. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And God's bestowed on him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything in creation is gonna be subject to this king. That's the power with which God will bring us home. And our king personally returns to make sure we're repatriated to himself. Now i want to say here that our hope as christians is historical this is not wishful thinking but we 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 can confidently expect christ to return based on a historical event we expect jesus to come and resurrect our bodies because he first rose from the dead physically in history we've got real reasons to believe this there's there's eyewitnesses who went to their death proclaiming this if you're finding this, this claim hard to believe, whether you're a Christian or you're exploring the faith, I'd invite you to, to come and chat to, a, chat to one of us. Um, go explore some of the evidence for this yourselves until, until you're able to, to really have a, a confident hope in, in, the, in these claims. Friends, we don't belong here. This earth is not our home. Press on, awaiting your true home. Now, we can assimilate into the culture of this world, denying our heavenly citizenship, or we can live counterculturally, because we are confidently awaiting our Lord and Savior. Maybe you're someone who was once zealous about your faith. You were really trying your best to live it out. But as you've grown older, you've become a bit cynical, you've come to accept certain things about the way the world works, and you've made some compromises. But we're foreigners. Let's not settle here. A more literal translation of Philippians 1.27 reads, only live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Let your citizenship, let the way that you live reflect your citizenship. In the centuries that followed Jesus' death and resurrection, there was this dramatic reshaping of the world. Um, In the first three centuries of the church, the thing that won the world over was the radically countercultural lives of Christians. There's a letter from the 2nd century that I heard recently that captures some of this. For Christians, it says, are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities and follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time they de- they demonstrate the admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but not as residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They are put to death, yet they are raised to life. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they're punished, they rejoice as those brought to life. A hostile culture to Christianity. These Christians, their their countercultural lifestyle changed the world. Now, according to the culture that we live in, suffering is the greatest nightmare. It's awkward to talk about your suffering when someone only wants to hear about your career, your relationships, your, your future children. But as foreigners in this world, and not just me, right? But all of us, as foreigners in this world, how we respond to suffering is the greatest sign of where home is. The way we respond to suffering is the best witness to this world of the greatness of our true citizenship, and our hope in this. And Lastly, our hope is shared. In verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, he says, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul's so invested in these guys, right? Christ is his prize, but they're his crown. He's so invested in them standing firm in Christ, them finishing the race with him, them living counterculturally, that his victory is wrapped up in their victory too. Running the race is not something we're doing alone. When you're fading in love for Jesus, something else pulls you more than him, where we set our minds on this world, know that Jesus is better. This is why, this is why I, I wanna plead with you. Jesus is better. Stand firm in the Lord. He's worth pressing into. He's worth pressing on towards. And this is why we have a membership covenant, right? It's about finishing well together. If we love each other, he has to be the greatest uh, desire that we have for another person whom we love. That, we, that they would also stand firm with us and, and hope and like standing firm, putting the hope on Jesus. Let's, let's press on because he's coming for his own. Let's finish this race together. When we sing together as part of our response in just a bit, are we gonna declare our hope that Jesus is mine? Don't think of this as simply between you and God. Think of this as between you and God as you encourage another brother. It's, it's, it's like, it's between me and God and between my family and God. We're declaring to each other that we have no resting place on this earth, that Jesus alone satisfies, that he's worth clinging to, that he's worth pressing on so that we make him our own. Let me pray. Father in heaven, God, I pray for our hearts to be moved by your love, for our hearts to be won over by your love. I thank you that you have made us your own and that you promise to return and make us your own. Lord, I pray that Jesus would be the greatest prize of our hearts. God, I pray that we'd set our hope, not on this earth, but in Christ's coming back. And so I pray for all of us that you'd turn our eyes to you, Lord Jesus, and give us faith to press on towards you. I ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening
0: to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.